welcome to Poetry Says Everyone, I'm Alice. Today's episode is a really good one if you're interested in Indigenous Australian poetry. This was a really big blind spot for me. I basically didn't know anything about it until I started preparing to talk with Robert Wood, who's done a huge amount of writing in Australia and elsewhere. He's an incredible poet and he knows a lot about this stuff. So I was really glad to have somebody to walk me through those first steps into this world. And we talk specifically about a book called Songs of Central Australia, which you can buy for a cool $5,000. Or you can just listen to Robert's explanation of what the book is and how it came about. It's a very complicated and interesting story. And we talk about some other things, including his poem In the Desert, which as of the day of recording is still riling people up which is good to hear. So I hope you enjoy this one. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Robert. When I was researching your writing online, um, I thought, I wonder how Robert introduces himself because you have writing in kind of every conceivable corner. You've got interviews, articles, amazing poetry. What do you say when someone says to you, so what do you do? When I answer that question in person, I do say I am a poet um, because most of the writing that I do orients itself around poetry as a broad field. Uh, It's taken a little while before I felt comfortable saying that for a whole host of reasons, but mainly to do with the ethical importance or ability of poetry to speak into the world. Um, but when it comes to sort of short biographical passages that, you know, sit next to an article I've written or a, a poetry composition I've done and that's been placed in a journal, that shifts around a lot. Um, so sometimes I might highlight my ethnic background. Sometimes I might highlight my educational position. And at other times I might say where I've published previously. Um, so. At the level of conversation, I do introduce myself as a poet. Um, But when it comes to the written form and those hundred word bios, there's a sort of diverse and conscious practice of framing myself according to that publication. I think you might be the first person to actually put it in, in such a clear way. But we do frame ourselves, don't we? I certainly will tend to do that as well. Sometimes I say... I'm an ex-Canberran, <laughs> which I'm sure people from Canberra love that. Um, and sometimes I say I'm Melbourne-based. Um, for me, it's all about place and, and where I am. But, yeah, that's a really good point. And so at the moment, you are in Kerala in India. Yeah, that's right. So right now, um, I have been Melbourne-based. I'm also an ex-Canberran, even though I grew up in Perth. But right now, I'm in Kerala. Uh, in the town of Fort Kochi, uh, which is a sort of coastal town that's been interconnected for a lot of its history. You know, people here used to trade with the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, mainly spices, but other commodities. Uh, Christianity was born in around 50 AD when St. Thomas came down. And there's been sort of various layers and levels of colonial occupation and colonial governance since around the 14th century, the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British mainly. But I came here because this is where my mother's family's from. Uh, my mother's a Malayali woman who's lived in Australia for the last 40 years. But for me, it was kind of a, a homecoming and a better way to know myself. Wow. So is this then that you've actually moved to Kerala or you are, are visiting for a short time or are you kind of so, waiting to see what the next step is? Uh, I'm here for the next six months. Um, And so me and my partner have a couple of distinct writing projects that we're doing here. Um, She's working for the Kochi Art Biennale, which is a big international arts festival that runs for a few months. Um, And I'm trying to organize a manuscript to submit once I leave here. Um, The plan after that is to go to Columbia University where I've been asked to be a visiting scholar. So I should be in New York from next August until next December. And then after that, uh, it's anyone's guess. That's so exciting. Wow. What amazing things to be working on. 
I always find that if I'm outside Australia, I get a bit more focus. It's like you're pulling back instead of having your eyes right up against the page and you can see more about how our, our country works and, and what happens there. And I'm wondering if that's the same for you and what Australia looks like from your current vantage point. Well, I think that's a very interesting question, partly because it has a philosophical basis in the the idea of homesickness being a start to writing analysis or the fact that the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, which means we can sort of apprehend what's been going on after the fact. But I think of Australia as a kind of organisational possibility. And so even when I'm in the landmass Australia, I might think of myself as speaking from a specific position, which might be Melbourne or might be Noongar country or it might be other places that I, I feel comfortable as an organising principle and quality. Um, but, you know, for me, leaving Australia means I do continue to write on it and I think Australia will, as a concept as well as a specific place will be something that I maintain throughout my writing life wherever I am. Um, but I also think... One of the interesting things to grapple with is the way in which the nation and how we use Australia in various rhetorical games can be a type of false consciousness. And that might be about trying to think what a poetic expression of a new society looks like that is on the landmass that different people call different things and which is commonly called Australia. And part of that might be about coming to an understanding of how we know ourselves better as unique individuals. Uh, which for me involves coming to a place like Kerala where I have family relations that go a long time back. Yeah, I, as I was reading your work, it was the very first time I'd ever encountered the word Australia put in um, quote marks. Mm -hmm. And it made me realise, ah, this is not a concrete thing. This is not necessarily a given. Um, I'd never really thought about that before. So... Yeah, I love what you say about it being an organisational possibility. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't want to give up on the idea of Australia, but I don't want to be a blind nationalist. And there's kind of three ways in which I think about this. One is the kind of nationalist moment of the immediate post-war era, where you have people like Rex Ingemels with a sort of romantic attachment to the Indigenous, and people like Judith Wright and A.D. Hope all really fighting over Australia as a contested term. And that kind of dissipates somewhat with the generation of 68 and Tranter and Murray and those kind of things. But I think of Australia as a set of possibilities because I don't think it only has to be a conservative frame of reference, you know, where I um, am a champion for Vegemite and I, you know, kiss the portrait of the Queen. I think it can be more than that. And I think there is a rich history there that kind of evades those possibilities. Um, the other way in which I, I think about it, there's, there's kind of two overlapping things here, and they're both based on maps. One is the I-axis map, which divides Australia into 17 different areas that are based on uh, hydrogeological entities. So you have the desert, you have the Fitzmaurice, you have the Kimberley. And these correspond to lots of cultural similarities between Indigenous groups in a sort of uh, pre-settlement understanding of where those groups' boundaries were, so based on language groups. So, you know, in the desert, you might have Aranda people. Um, you know, in the in the Pilbara, you might have Nalama people and so on and so forth. And I think that is a way of making us understand that Australia doesn't have to be divided into states or, or that Australia is not just a sort of um, landmass that have a, a set way of understanding. And I think that's about indigenising a, a sort of perspective about the continent as a whole. And the third map that's kind of similar is a, a map of contemporary Australia which shows the dispersal of language throughout. And that's dominated mainly by English, but there's also pockets of resistance in a whole host of places, particularly in the top end uh, and particularly in sort of the, the northwest coast. And that for me makes me understand Australia as a sort of um, as a sort of union in a way that the USSR is, the way that the EU is, the way that the United States is. Um, based upon a linguistic diversity that I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate. And with that linguistic diversity, I think that's where poetry can really enter into that frame and we can learn a whole host of new vocabularies and new ways of understanding ourselves because of that linguistic diversity.
Yeah, it's such an exciting way to think about it and one that we basically, yeah, we're definitely not encouraged to think along those lines. And I think we'll, we'll get deeper into this as we talk about Songs of Central Australia, the work that we're going to discuss today. But I wanted to backtrack because I'm really interested in your entry into writing and poetry. And I was talking to a poet the other day who described the world of poetry as like a house. And for her, she felt like the front door wasn't open. She felt like she mm-hmm. had to climb in through the windows <laughs> to get any traction. And I'm wondering if for you, I feel like you've written so much and so widely, I feel like the front door must have always been open, but um, I'm wondering whether that would be a correct assumption. I think this uh, metaphor of poetry being a house is a useful and enduring one. I mean, there's the famous Emily Dickinson poem that where she describes poetry being a house that's fairer than prose. Um, in terms of my entry point into writing, it's similar to asking what's my entry point into language. You know, I, I grew up in a house with a lot of books and a lot of exposure to language. Um, that was primarily English, but there were other things going on as well. You know, my mum's my parents uh, migrated with us when I was growing up, so my grandparents were at home. And that brought a, a new different, new and different cultural sensibility to sort of Anglo-suburbia. Um, you know, and I... I went through public schools and public university where I was writing essays like everyone else. And the real moment where I began to write seriously was after I had left university because I made a a concerted effort to do that. Uh, I was lucky enough to win a research grant from a university in the United States after I'd finished a master's there. And it gave me the next few years living on the smell of an oily rag to basically sit down and write all day, every day. And I did that. Um, from 2008 to 2011 very diligently, at which point in time I was back in Australia and I needed to work and, uh, um, you know, I had vague ideas that writing didn't do anything in the world and that I needed to participate in an ethical way in helping people get their basic needs met, food, water, shelter. Um, And for me that was a political undertaking, something that was very hard to deny. Um, And I still have a slight bit of tension or complication around being a writer because I don't necessarily think of it as an ethical act and particularly poetry among that. Um, I need to think about how metaphors are useful for helping people have their spiritual needs needs met and that doesn't invalidate one from interacting with the world. Um, You know, so I was always writing but I never sought to put my poetry into the world. Um, I think in that sense, you know, doors are... Uh, open from one side or closed from another side and it can be doors all the way down but you need to know in one way what the room you're entering into is as well as be open to the possibility of what that might become yeah I like what you say there about poetry not necessarily being an ethical act and I think I understand what you mean in terms of I read in an interview with you, somebody had asked you, can poetry be therapy? And you Mm -hmm. said, it can be, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. And yeah, it's just, it's such an interesting idea. I think a lot of writers and definitely a lot of poets do have a strong social conscience, for lack of a better word. And we do feel called to do work that that helps people in a concrete way. Um, But then there's still the call to write as well. So it's a mixing or a balancing. Absolutely. And we can think about ethics in a few different ways. We can think about our acts as a private person, uh, which means we might offset carbon when we get on an aeroplane. And I think we need to see those as the type of necessary political revolution for what that is. Um, But we can also think about the ethics of the writing itself, uh, which is to say how our words can impact upon people who do hold positions that seem to have more autonomy and more material power. So what that might mean for me in particular is a strong adherence to metaphor, not only in specific phrases, but metaphor at the level of thinking and concept. That's another way of saying I don't necessarily think uh, writing needs to be overly didactic in order to have a moral impact upon the world, which is partly about the radicalism of form, Uh, as well as partly about understanding that people can get what you're saying without you having to tell them, go get the milk or 
uh, vote for the Labour Party. I think people can understand the sense and the feeling of what's going on, particularly with language as well as other arts, without being hit over the head with a hammer. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is something that I I am always turning over in my mind too. It's that maybe this is a simplistic way of putting it, but it's the tension between, I guess, what you would categorize as political poetry that has a really overt, strong message and the way that that moves people in a really direct way and gets people fired up. And then, yeah, that poetry that's a little bit harder to pin down and and kind of does work on an almost unconscious level. Is that is that a fair way of describing what you're saying or...? Yeah, I think that's definitely a fair way of putting it. One thing that I always like doing after we come to an agreeable sort of understanding of what's going on is to interrogate those foundations. So it might be about saying, well, what is poetry to begin with in the first place or what is politics and how might we just think of those as useful and separate categories even though they're constantly joined and they're constantly interacting. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to point to when someone uses poetry in federal parliament and it's recorded in Hansard or when uh, Barack Obama is seen carrying a book of Claudia Rankin or Derek Walcott's out of the Oval Office. But what that might mean is a sort of humanistic understanding about the virtues of a person no matter where they're placed, which is to say I think politicians can be possessed of poetic vision uh, and, and that poets can also be down in the mark, stabbing each other in the back in, in the aspiration for status. Um, so I think that, you know, in that sense, legislation is the kind of forgotten poetry of history and that I know plenty of poets who are rather Machiavellian when it comes to getting their own work out. Yep. I, I can't disagree <laughs> with you there. I can't disagree with you there. And I, look, I probably fall into that category sometimes myself. Um, <laughs> I really, I, I think this might be a good point to talk about your poem In the Desert, which was published in Best Australian Poetry 2013. Mm -hmm. um, was, it, was that the first place that it appeared? No, so it appeared in Southerly before that. Um, and though I'd been writing probably consciously for about five years then, that was the first poem of mine that was ever published. Um, so it took me a while before I started sending work out, which was definitely conscious. You know, I'd written hundreds of thousands of words in a, in a variety of forms um, and not only just sitting at my computer and typing but at that stage I was writing huge paper canvases, uh, streams of consciousness with white ink and then, and then doing large geometric shapes um, with sort of an ink that I was mixing from ochre and, and other types of material I was finding from the country. So I was always very invested in a kind of the materiality of language. And I was trying to think of what the limits of language were. Um, but In the Desert first appeared in Southerly, um, which was, you know, a pleasant surprise for me. And can you describe for anyone who maybe hasn't seen it what the poem is? Yeah, so the poem is a visual poem. Um, it's just a series of... Uh, it's one side of brackets stacked up against a whole page. So the impression you're left with when you're immediately apprehended is that it could be uh, sand dunes like you see on the desert when they're blown by the wind, or it could be like the um, markings people make on the small wooden animals with to burn in sort of central Australia, or it could be a reference to, you know, various fire dancing ceremonies of videos you can which watch through iAccess uh, and those kind of markings on the body, uh, tourist artifacts uh, and animals, as well as the sort of markings of the land itself. So it was kind of a, a complex interaction as well as a critique of language trying to, to do um, a different visual representation and understand what poetry as a broad category could be. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of doing that work that, that we were discussing before of that sort of political work of opening up space rather than closing down options through language. Um, I think this is why I really like poetry that doesn't use 
many words, even though I love really wordy poets like Whitman. But sometimes when there are fewer words, there's more space to think. And obviously in the desert, if you're going to be really technical about it, it's using three words in the desert. And yeah, I was, that's right. Yeah, and I was thinking about that yesterday and thinking how interesting that you've chosen to say in the desert as opposed to the desert or just desert. Um, yeah. It really, I don't know, that, that seems really significant to me. I haven't quite decided how to interpret it. But, yeah, it seems like that must have been a conscious choice too. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, you know, I, one thing I appreciate about poetry, and I love a, I love language, so I love a diverse cross-section of poetry, uh, things that are spare, things that are lyrical, things that are uh, prosaic, things that are epic, a whole host of things. Uh, but what I will say is one thing I greatly appreciate about poetry is how immersed you can get in defamiliarizing yourself. So what do I mean by that? I mean that I wanted people to have an experience of being in the desert, not on the desert, peripheral to it, or just looking at the desert. You want to be inside that experience. Because I think being internal to an experience promotes a possibility of empathy as an engagement with the world. Um, and I mean that as a defamiliarizing thing, which is to say it takes us out of our habits. It takes us out of our assumptions, what we think of as natural, as what we think of we can't change. And that is where poetry can have a sort of revolutionary possibility in the world, um, is that kind of ability to break through what we take for granted, to, to think about language as something that can be changed. And with changing our language, we can change our thoughts as well as our actions. And I think that's vitally important, given that we have so many problems. Yeah, and it, it can challenge even what we think of as a landscape, right? Like, I, I think mm-hmm. when you mentioned this poem as one you wanted to talk about, I opened it up and thought, oh, I've seen this before. And I, I guess I must have seen it in Best 2013. And I have a vague memory of thinking, what's going on here? Who is this mm-hmm. R.D. Wood? What's happening? You know, <laughs> just because I wasn't... I wasn't quite ready for it but then because I think because I saw that poem I was more able to appreciate um, poems later on like I read uh, Pio's number poems which is probably yeah. not really a fair comparison but like same kind of ideas maybe at work um, yeah. or some of the same ideas and yeah so it kind of, it shifted something in me and I didn't realize that it had done that until much later um, sure. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, there is a, there's been a long history of sort of visual poems, and it depends how broad you want to make that category. Whether you make an argument for ideograms and calligraphy in a sort of Chinese context, or whether you make an argument for hieroglyphics. But just thinking about the 20th century, you know, there's concrete poetry coming out of Brazil and England and the United States from the 30s, 40s, 50s onwards. No, and I, I remember seeing in two exhibitions. One was by Bob Cobbing at the University of Pennsylvania, where I studied, uh, which was accompanied by a whole host of sound poems. And the other one was Christian Dottremont at, at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. You know, and and for me, this poem in the desert was a was a full stop, was an end to that sort of avant-garde era in my own practice, uh, or or it was the final experiment of my early years as a poet where most of that stuff was secreted away, was stored in a shed, sometimes it was mailed out, but I, I never wanted to put it in the world um, for a whole host of reasons. And, you know, I, I had a lot of experiments in that time. You know, I, I wrote 345 poems about, uh, that were all composed of numbers. I, I wrote a whole host of, you know, poems that were, were just typographical marks. and. You know, that was an interesting experiment for me, but, but this is the sort of research and development wing of language that you kind of have to get through before you can come to an applicable solution. Um, and for me, it was very surprising, A, that Southerly picked it up, and it was even more surprising that it was in the 2013 Best Australian Poems. Um, I also happened to be at a conference in Wollongong in 2015, and Lachlan Brown, who teaches at Charles Sturt Uni, uh, was the chair for that panel. And 
and he he introduced me by mentioning his the in the desert poem and saying that it was a poem that he teaches um and that it's the poem that's most widely written about in his course precisely because it was seen as radical now i didn't necessarily see it as a radical poem at the time because i've been exposed to so much uh, visual poetry that was far more radical in its conception execution um, as well as its pure aesthetic uh, but it was interesting to me, A, that I had readers, which I'd never really thought of before, um, and B, that it, it would be institutionalised in a different way. Um, this kind of continues to have a history because today I noticed on Facebook, Lachlan had a, a post mentioning the Best Australian Poems 2016 had come out and that he has a poem in it. And underneath it was a comment from one of his former students which said, I will happily buy this book as long as there's no poems featuring just parentheses and no words. Oh. But at least it told me, to, taught me how to define what a poem is. And that's what I was struggling with early on when I, when I was writing poetry or, or experimenting a whole host of different forms, is what could poem actually be and what might that look like in situating it in the world? Wow. Wow. So you challenge this particular person so much that they've drawn a line there and said, this is anything on the other side of this is not poetry. Exactly. What was interesting was that she said there's no words in it, so it's not a poem. Uh, but like you say, there's three words in it, and those three words in it are very important. Yeah, wow, wow. That's very exciting in a way to think that, that you've <laughs> written something that's that's made somebody draw that boundary line. <laughs> um and when you when you put this poem together in the desert, did you had you already um, encountered songs of Central Australia? Uh, no, I hadn't. So when I put the in the poem in the desert poem together, you know, I'd visited Central Australia and I'd seen the markings people make on the wooden animals uh, with you know iron iron hot markers, and I'd I'd seen various uh, ceremonial body designs and I'd, I'd seen sort of the photographs of the dunes where they look like waves which is what the brackets look like but it was kind of written as a possibility um, in light of you know the development of the the keyboard uh, because I could only get repetitions of um, the parentheses really using a computer uh, I think you could do it of course on a typewriter you can do it by hand but it has a different aesthetic look to it because it's not as uniform but I hadn't come across Songs of Central Australia when I wrote that, even though I'd been long interested in Australian Aboriginal song poetry. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the influence of the keyboard as well, because in reading about this book, Songs of Central Australia, it said it, the publication, which was in 1971, was delayed because they just didn't have the fonts they needed. They had to actually yeah. create fonts to put this book together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that's something that's been interesting about coming to Kochi, where I am now, is because uh, Malayalam, which is the local language here and the language group my mum is from, um, is a very curly, cursive script. Uh, it's similar to Hindi, but it has less straight lines across the top, and it's, it, it has a very sort of um, elegant um, sort of copper plate possibility to it. But it's interesting because there's so much hand-painted signage that I see on the street um, and it, it, it's a very difficult thing to write down. Um, and, and, you know, you see this kind of thing in Songs of Central Australia too where there's, there's so many different sounds that people make with their, with their tongues and their throats in their various uh, forms of aranda that you need to come up with a new way of putting that on the page. Did you want to go into how you discovered the book and, and what it is and maybe introduce people to... Um yeah, anyone who hasn't heard about it? Yeah, of course. So I can't quite remember the first time I came across Songs of Central Australia. Um, I do remember when I got my copy of it, uh, which is just an electronic copy, because um, to own the physical copy of it now is around $3,000 if you look on A-Books or, or one of those websites or websites. But I was given a PDF copy of it by a, a friend of mine who's a folklorist 
um, you know, he maintains an interest in songs all over the world, particularly epics like the Kalevala in Finland or the Bhagavad Gita here in India. Um, and he was one of those people who opened up for me the, the world of possibility of looking at folklore, uh, looking at sort of imagined geographical landscapes, and this kind of meshed with a, a familial understanding of Aboriginal song poems. Um, my brother-in-law is a Nalama man from the Western Pilbara, and I'd spoken with him for a long time, um, over the last 14 years really, about song poems and, and song poetry texts. And, and as an undergrad, I'd read song, the song lines by Bruce Chapman, and I was vaguely familiar with an understanding of um, Aboriginal song poetry in the context of Australia. But it was only after around 2008 to 2009 that I began to sort of seek this material out myself. Um, you know, having spoken with Aboriginal people and having Aboriginal people in my family, I knew that I didn't want to seek out private song lines, that I was only interested in public song, song poems that could be a sort of collaborative shared exercise in repatriation. Uh, but Strello kind of loomed as a, a mythic and totemic figure who was slightly different from other song collectors, people like Ronald and Catherine Bird or Alice Moyle. Um, so I started in Iatus and then I kind of knew Strello was on the horizon and he came into my orbit in that kind of way. Yeah. And so tell us the story of Ted Strello because I, reading about this in the last couple of days, I'm just, this is such a fascinating, complex story. I feel like this should be taught in primary schools. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, like, um, you know, as thankful as I am for having to learn uh, Shakespeare and Tim Winton and a whole host of other people, I do think Strello deserves a, a far greater place in the sort of public conversation in Australia, given that he brings up so much complexity. But the story of Ted Strello in the context of Central Australia begins with the story of his father, Carl Strello, who was a German Lutheran ministry who, who moved to Aranda country, Hermannsburg, in the 1880s. Um, you know, Ted Strello was born to him in the early 20th century and he grew up speaking Aranda as his first language. Um, you know, so he was from that community in a lot of ways. Um, afterwards, you know, he, he goes and studies in Adelaide, languages and the classics, and he kind of bumps back and forwards between, um, you know, Aranda country, Adelaide, with a couple of trips to Europe in between. He sort of eventually settles in Central Australia in the 1930s, um, and it's while he's there that that he starts participating in the sort of ceremonial life of around the people uh, as an observer as well as a participant. Now, it's important to note that he doesn't go through the law, which is to say he is not an initiated man according to the uh, all reports of around the people. But at the same point in time, he he develops a a huge knowledge of Aranda customs and traditions and song poems. And this is how Songs of Central Australia emerges as a distinct text. Yeah, and and after, by the time it was published, about seven mm -hmm. years afterwards, he had collected over 4,000 song verses, yeah. 8,000 photos, 12,000 sacred artefacts. He had this gigantic collection and then that became a problem. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, people have estimated the Strello collection, which is now housed in Central Australia, is 15 kilometres of movie film, 7,000 slides, thousands of pages of genealogical records, uh, myths and sound recording, 42 diaries and, like, an 1,000-volume a library. I mean, he was like other anthropologists or, you know, ethnomusicologists in that he had specific informants. You know, in 1932, when he was back there, he, he became friends with an old man whose name was Mickey Dow Dow, who, whose traditional name was Akwere or Gura, which means bandicoot, you know. And so Strello had access to people with, you know, huge amounts of knowledge, traditional knowledge, um, and deep attachments to place and deep attachments to country. But you're right, these things start to become a problem and I think uh, part of that problem is is reflected in our conversation now or the absence of our conversation about Australia now because of the complexity of speaking about 
uh, local forms of identity, about repatriation, about colonialism, about ownership of archives, as well as the secret, sacred and gendered nature of these poems. Yeah, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what happened sort of towards the end of Strello's life and how the collection was left after he died and, and passed it on to his wife. Yeah, so, you know, Strello kind of uh, ascended the Aranda hierarchy quite quickly uh, when he went back there. But towards the end of his life, you know, it was kind of mired in controversy. You know, he he bought into the, the myth that was prevalent at that time, which you see in other people's work like Roland Robinson and Rex Ingemels, that, you know, Aboriginal people were a dying race. And he thought that uh, his informants were the sort of last great uh, ceremonial chiefs who had a whole raft of poetic knowledge. Now, this kind of gets challenged by the next generation of Aranda people who are up and coming. Um, and this is where Songs of Central Australia starts to become com quite complex um, insofar as people debate the, the sort of common understanding of that knowledge, the public understanding of that knowledge and its secret, sacred nature, as well as the, the possibility of ownership. Um, Strello is quite firm in thinking that he's the one who, who is able to present this to the public, that he's the one who can, can take this on board. Um, and he, he becomes a kind of gatekeeper rather than a bridge builder for a lot of people. Um, this is something that continues with his second wife after he dies. Uh, I mean, she refuses access to local Aboriginal people to a whole host of materials that are essentially their communities. Um, and there's been a, a lot of ongoing uh, contestation and fighting about the Strello archive subsequently. Yeah, it almost sounds like reading about it that we're not even really sure that everything is present and accounted for, even still. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one of those things is about the, the sort of uh, presence of museums collecting um, cultural artifacts, you know, and this has been in the news recently with, uh, with people um, wanting the return of a shield, you know, that Captain Cook took back to England with him and which is housed in the British Museum. Uh, you know, you have a whole host of issues about repatriation. You know, the famous one in, that I can think of immediately is uh, what to do with Yagan's head, who was an Aboriginal resistance warrior from Noongar country in Western Australia, and that was shipped back to the United Kingdom. But it brings with a whole host of ideas and, and cultural complexities about ownership, um, about collaboration, about fidelity to sources that I think are really hard to unpack when you get down to the nitty gritty of particular uh, instances and particular communities. The reason I think this is so important, though, is that it is hard to unpack, but it's just worth worth thinking about, and it's not it's not so difficult that only anthropologists or only museum curators could be having these conversations. I, I think it's something that you could talk about with a year six class, and it would just be yeah such a great thing to have on yeah. kids' minds as they look at um, things in museums. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, we need to answer what the correct way to go about cultural repatriation is in relationship to Strello or a whole host of other things. But what I would like to see is a sort of more open dialogue about how poetry interacts with these kinds of things in the context of Australia. For example, you know, I know you're in Melbourne, if you look at the VCE text list for this year, there's 15 texts on it, of which four are Australian. Um, and this is kind of a, a I think a, a poor setting in the system, a, a lack in the system uh, of how people learn about where they're from. Now, Australia is from Central Australia, and you could argue that that's further away from Melbourne than Melbourne is from uh, London, for example. But I would like to think that we can be proud of our own traditions and attend to the complexity that's behind them, as well as recognise them for being beautiful and powerful in the ways that they are aesthetically. Yeah, completely. And, and reading the 
collections that you put together for Jacket 2, I was just yeah. so... I mean, I, I have read some song poetry before, but only small bits of it and not with any explanation. And, yeah, I was just so struck by the fact that that there's this whole area of poetry that I guess I'd never really thought that I was even allowed to go near. I suppose it's sort of like I had bought into this myth that that's not for you and you should be sure. concentrating on your Shakespeare. <laughs> but um, yeah. what you said in, in Jacket 2 is that recognising and celebrating this work changes our ideas of what poetry has been or could be. And the ecosystem of writing as a whole is improved by such diversification. I think that's that's exactly what I felt. It, it changed my idea of what Australian poetry could be or, yeah, just poetry in general. Yeah, I mean, just like in the desert has the potential to uh, cross various language boundaries because it's visual rather than based upon an English word or a French word or, or even an Alamo word, I think uh, reframing material that's in anthropological archives to be aesthetic is a sort of a process of fidelity and a process of repatriation. There's a whole host of public song poetry that exists in Australian Aboriginal communities that people can share in and comment upon and, and really help us to change our aesthetic ideas of what's possible in that place. Um, you know, one song form I'm particularly fond of is Tabi which are public, personally authored song poems from the Western Pilgrim. You know, and Tabi are most well-known as a poetry archive um, through Von Brandenstein's and um, Taruru, which is a book that came out around the same time as Trello. You know, and, and you can listen to Tabi and you, you can think about uh, possibilities outside of the Anglophonic world that limits itself in Australia. Um, so to me, that's quite exciting to participate in that heritage. Um, what I will also add is, is this is a very different relationship to secret, sacred material, which is private and which I think is important for Aboriginal people to have the strength and resilience to have as their own. Um, and that's being sharing in that depends on specific communities. But I think this is where I would have a, I do have an ethical problem with Strello in that you need to maintain ongoing forms of connection with communities over the course of your life so you don't buy into the dying race idea so that you can hand this material on to people uh, in a way that supports and nourishes places, particularly when they're on the frontier or particularly when people are uh, in difficult personal circumstances. And I think that's what poetry can do in the sort of diminishing light of a hard world. Um, I think poetry can provide a form of critical solace um, when other things don't. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, as you say, just challenge that idea that this is a dying culture, these are dead languages, it's all, I don't know, there's almost this, this really persistent myth, even well past Strello into now, that it's just a matter of time before all this culture dies away and, and there's nothing left, but, but it's just not the case. Yeah, I mean... You know, these places, and when I say these places, I'm, you know, I think about where I worked in Madhu country in the eastern Pilbara, I think about the western Pilbara, I think about places I've been in the Gulf of Carpentaria, central Australia on the top end. You know, they've got their own dynamism, their own energy, their own resilience. And I think recognising that is a benefit for everyone. I think there's nothing to be gained uh, by by assuming that, that something is dying out and that we need to be overly romantic or nostalgic and confine people who have a rich and ongoing poetic tradition to being museum pieces in a sort of colonial or anthropological way. Mm, exactly. Would you like to read one of the poems, perhaps from Jacket 2 or one of your particular favourites in terms of Tabi or something like that? Yeah, okay, so yeah, I'd love to read something from Jacket 2. Um, I'll read something that was collected by Ronald and Catherine Burnt. Um, I particularly like them as a sort of model of a working relationship and collaboration between you know, two life partners. Um, and I also have an attachment to them 
by being from Western Australia where their archive is hand, handled and kept. Um, so this is from a preliminary report of fieldwork in the Uldea region in Western South Australia. One, grub in the tree, rub, hit, brush sand aside, brush sand aside, grub in tree. Two, dog, find it, close up, dead it was. Three, rock wallaby hit it, fingernail, going on, going on along all fours, you rock wallaby hit it with club. Four, kangaroo tail, euro, mallee country, big belly. Five, sweet stick to throw across spider web to hear talking. Six, the birds cry a large blue morning bird cook it, eating it, the brothers both. That's just the selection of poems that I, I took out of Oceania, which was a very important anthropological journal about Australia and the Pacific. Um, and, you know, for me, I kind of like these poems and their fragmentary quality. And as far as I can tell, they're just as important as reading Sappho's fragments. I was going to say they're, they're very, very um, reminiscent of the translations of Sappho. I, yeah, they've got this, this real... I don't know, I hesitate to say fragility. They do feel like there's, they're very robust, but yeah, there's all this, all this space in between them. Is that, is that fragmentary nature to do with the translation or is that just the fact that this is what was said? This is to do with the translation and the transcription. So I'm dealing with a textual representation based upon a language other than English. Um, and so not only does it have to be written down and become a written form according to a whole host of orthographic techniques that linguists have come up with for various language groups, but then it also needs to be translated into English and then uh, sometimes it's given a poetic gloss. Now that kind of history of the translation of Australian song poetry by anthropologists and people in explorers' diaries and a whole range of keen amateur people. Uh, means that it, it kind of mimics or tracks the history of English poetry as well. So if you're looking at these sort of texts from the mid-19th century, it's really heavy formal rhyme, um, you know, and then as it goes along, it starts to free up and then it starts to become more fragmentary in the second half of the 20th century. Um, so I think there's a, a whole host of ways of understanding the history of uh, romanticism, Australian nationalism and modernism through this as a shadow project uh, that ironically enough reflects back on the object we're always looking at. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so interesting to look at those early examples and, and hear kind of the Banjo-Patterson-esque meter and form and yeah. then watch that kind of melt away as, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just as a final question, I wanted to ask you about your book Landmass and... Mm -hmm the text title charts which is it's a book of its own um, mm -hmm. both of which you put up this year and I say put up because what these are are completely um, typeset manuscripts or it's a finished mm -hmm. book but it's in PDF form and yeah. at the end of the text you have a note that says this is this is free it's out there it's removed from the monetary economy and and I think I, I was just blown away by that. I thought, but but this is a whole book and, and you've just given it to me. Yes. <laughs> it's so, quite an amazing thing. Landmass has been printed, uh, rest assured, on environmentally friendly paper with sensitive ink. Um, and, you know, title charts is a, is a, PDF, of a PDF of itself. But both of those are experiments in book length form, which I haven't necessarily done before. Um, you know, and the reason for framing them as free is partly because I think of a poetry as a space outside of money, not just outside of capitalism, because, you know, money exists in communist societies and societies which operate somewhere between the, the public and private economy, but as a sort of gift in, in the sort of mouse sense that they set up different relationships of obligation and exchange between individuals. 
Now, I like to think of poetry as a, as a utopian endeavour, and as part of that, I think we need to pay attention to the social relations of poetry, which is not only in terms of being generous to people who you meet at book launches and poetry readings and supporting them and patting them on the back, but it's about having a robust, honest conversation that's based on critical language when it comes to our own aesthetic practices. And one of those is about uh, money that exists in poetry, uh, because there's not much money to go around in poetry as I see it mainly in Australia at the moment. Um, so rather than seeing that as necessarily problematic, why can't we see that as a symptom of a good thing? Um, what can we do differently because of free labour? Uh, what can we set up as an ideal society um, that participates in gifts? Now, you know, gifts, of course, do have to exist with the monetary economy, you know. I had to pay money to get landmass printed as a physical object. But just like I give someone a birthday present or something at Christmas, I remove that type of commodity exchange and, and transfer it into a different set of possibilities. And I think, for me, that's what's exciting about writing books uh, and book-length projects that are not necessarily concerned with financial things. Yeah, that's a really different and, and quite exciting way to think about it. It's it's a complete departure from the usual conversation that we as, as poets and writers in Australia are often having, which is there's no money. I don't know how I'm meant to support myself and make good work. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really different way of thinking about it. It's very interesting. I mean, I know some very fine poets who... Um, you know, receive welfare benefits and, you know, I think that can give you different forms of time. And I do think the welfare state is important and a necessary part of where we are right now. Um, do I think we need to think about the social safety net? Absolutely. Do I think there needs to be an increase in funding for the arts in general and literature in particular? Yes, 100%. Those things aren't deniable. But I would also like to think that we can cultivate spaces that are safe for all kinds of people, people from Central Australia, uh, people who might oppose poetry that has no words. Um, and I think we've got to create a space for people. And we can do that, I think, when there are no economic barriers to entry, um, even though you must have some way of supporting yourself. Mm, yeah, yeah. It mean, might mean that fewer people have to climb in through the windows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But also that the door to the house of poetry might not seem so long. 